Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love and peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is God's word. All right, go ahead and have a seat real quick. And uh, as of right now, uh, we've been doing a series uh, for a long time, but we've been uh, doing uh, congregation written Lord's prayers as ways to kind of like build out the Lord's prayer as something that we can do in a communal way. And this week, uh, my, my good pal Peter's going to be joining us. So Peter, there you go. Hello. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Father, your name is holy. You are above all creation. We praise you. In you, no sin or deceit is to be found. You do not tempt us to do evil. You alone are worthy to be worshipped. Father, you are perfect. You reveal yourself to us through your creation. We can see your majesty in the stars and in the complexity of biological life. You also reveal your law to all humans through our conscience, which you have given to us. You have also chosen to reveal your ways and who you are through words. We praise you that you have given us your word, just as you are perfect and holy, so your word is also perfect and holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. O God, in heaven, the myriads of angels and saints around your throne worship you alone, fear you alone. Likewise, O God, by your Holy Spirit, whom you have made possible to live inside of us through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, may we fear you alone and worship you alone all the days of our lives. In heaven, the saints love you more than all created things combined. O Lord, cause us by your Holy Spirit to love you above all other blessings combined. In heaven, your words are heeded and obeyed immediately without delay. In heaven, Satan, the opinions of man, or sinful flesh do not cast doubt as to what you have spoken. Likewise, O God, let us trust and obey your scripture in full assurance. And may we not allow Satan, man's opinion, or our own flesh to cast, cast doubt as to what you have spoken. And may we be quick to obey you when you speak. Give us this day our daily bread. Father, please provide our physical as well as our spiritual needs this day. We trust your promise in your word that you will. And forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Father, we are sinful people. We confessed our, our lust, our fear of man, our lack of love, our doubt of your word, and the fact that we so often 
let your created blessings take the rightful place in our hearts that only you are to occupy. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. O oh, Father, keep us close to you. Keep us on the narrow path. We trust you will provoke. We trust your promise that you will provide a way of escape when we are tempted. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. All right. Thanks, Peter. Okay. All right. So as I mentioned earlier, this is the final week of First Peter. Uh, First Peter, we've been going through pretty much throughout the summer. And we've been kind of building this idea with it that the church should be a compelling community. And I mean, I think the fact that we were able to do that and stay loyal to the text, I think, is really beautiful. And I think that Andy's crafting of that has been really great over the past few months to listen to. And it's especially remarkable to me because you'd think a compelling community would be one that's like thriving and that a compelling community would be one that's just like flourishing and happy and you know, hey, our bank accounts are full, our bellies are full, we're having a great time. But the great irony is that the church that Peter's writing to here is having a pretty bad time. They're, uh, they're struggling quite a bit. And so now we're closing it out. And I've got a few ideas to share with you guys. I was talking to a friend about this passage, specifically 1 Peter 5 earlier this week. And he told me, that it was his favorite passage in the entire Bible. I thought that was really interesting. And I was like, dude, tell me more. Why is that? And I had a couple ideas in my head. I'm like, ah, yeah, well, this is the passage where it says, you know, cast your cares on God for he cares for you. That's a pretty popular verse. Or um, the ideas of like humbling ourselves and, and the hope and the grace and all that stuff. I was thinking, yeah, it's probably for one of these reasons. But what he told me was actually very different. He told me that, ever since he was young, specifically when he was a teenager, he struggled a lot with things like depression, things like really intrusive, like ugly thoughts, really struggled with self-worth. And that at some point in his life, he read through 1 Peter 5, and he read this passage about his adversary, the devil, prowling the earth, looking for someone to devour. And he told me that in a weird way, He actually felt really comforted having struggled and gone through everything he'd gone through because he truly saw that there was someone opposing him. It like made a lot of sense for him all of a sudden to be like, okay, well, I knew there was me. I knew there was God. But when I struggled so much, I struggled to figure out how those two worked it out. So realizing, no, you actually have someone who was acting in complete opposition to you. That was like weirdly comforting to him. I thought that was, man, that's fascinating. I don't think it's because this dude was was a masochist. I don't think it's because he was like seeking like a worthy spiritual opponent. I think it was comforting to him because he knew that it was true. It felt right that someone opposed him. You've likely heard it said, this idea that There's no such thing as darkness. That darkness is not a thing in and of itself. It's just the absence of light. 
I'm not a physicist. I don't know if that's true. I just heard it. Or that like there's no such thing as something being cold. Something that's cold is just absent of heat. But there's not like coldness versus heat that oppose each other. Again, I could be wrong. But the interesting thing is that when we think of dualities, it's not the same with evil versus good. Evil is not just the absence of something good. Evil is a direct, active, intentional force working to dismember what is good. I read a quote this week. It goes like this. It said, in the case of the devil, evil is not merely an absence of something, but an active force, a living spiritual being who is perverted and perverts others. This is a terrible reality, mysterious and frightening. Interesting way to start a sermon, right? So to me, it's even more interesting that Peter decides to drop this bomb on the church within a few sentences of saying, all right, guys, see you later. And I think the reason why it wasn't jarring for him to include this grand reality was because the people that Peter was writing to, they knew it, just like this dude I had spoken to. They knew that they were being opposed. They knew they had a deep, evil, spiritual enemy. We knew they were familiar with suffering. We knew that suffering had likely stirred up this resentment against those who were causing their suffering. It had probably even given way to resentment towards the people who were not stopping their suffering. Again, a lot of what we talked about in the past few weeks, Peter's like, dudes, I get it, but you can't return evil for evil. He said that because they were probably thinking about it. Some of them had probably already done it. So in a way, this church that we genuinely believe represents the compelling community of the people of God was also a target of a spiritual opposer. And yet, in the midst of all of this, Peter's final words weren't like spooky and mysterious. He wasn't like, watch out for the devil. He mentions the devil. And then the rest of the passage is just rich with grace and encouragement and strength and foundation and glory. And it's so rich and beautiful. And honestly, I'm going to spend way more time talking about that. But I want to talk about it in the context of we have this realization that all of us, as, as children of God, have this enemy, have, have this kind of target on our back. And it's not from an opposing political party. It's not from a differing ideology. But as Paul said in Ephesians, the war that we're waging is spiritual, and our greatest enemies are spiritual. So how do, we, how do you close a book talking about that? Let's, uh, let's take a gander. I've got a few points we're going to walk through. Here's my first one. Humble yourselves 
before God. Humble yourselves before God. The first verse that we read tonight was just that. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Now, it's interesting because when you read just those first few words, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Like, I think if, if I was younger and my dad referred to, he, if my dad used the words, John, humble yourself before the mighty hand of dad, I would be very fearful. I would definitely be pulling back and thinking, all right, this is, this is a threat of discipline. I get what's happening here. I wasn't born yesterday. But what's interesting is that when you look into the text and that specific phrase, the mighty hand of God, there's a reference that's kind of that's caked in here that you would understand if you were the people that, that Peter was writing to. See, the mighty hand of God is a phrase that's used all throughout the New Testament. And almost every single time it's used, it's referencing a story. And that story is the Exodus story. So if you're not familiar with that, the Exodus story is basically pretty early on in the Bible. God has set this people aside known as Israel. They've been caught up in slavery for hundreds of years. And the story of Exodus was God raising up a leader and basically himself using a string of miracle after miracle and supernatural favor being shown to deliver and rescue these people from evil oppression. So when we read through this, like I said, our, our instinct is to be like, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. But if we look at what the text is saying here, it's not saying humble yourself or God's hand is going to come down and smack you silly. It's saying humble yourself so that God can rescue you as he's rescued his people throughout time, as God always rescues from evil. So that's an interesting thing to consider. This idea that the best way, I mean, this is kind of what Peter is saying right at the get-go. The best way for us to really handle evil, whether it's the evil of an evil dictator or the evil of just evil intrusive thoughts, is not to ball our fists and summon our strength and, you know, flex on the devil. It's actually do the opposite. It's to humble yourself. Now, don't get me wrong. This doesn't mean to be passive, to humble yourself doesn't mean to throw your hands up and be like, oh, oh, all right, well, that's it for me. That's all I got. It's not that because literally the next verse that we see here is cast your anxieties on God for he cares for you. Like this is, it, it's following up this call to be humble with an immediate action verb. Like saying, as a result of being humble, cast your anxieties, cast your cares out. And what I also found was interesting was that the, the, the type of verb that it uses here, this is not the type of casting like, you know, every time you get a care, you just cast it off, get another care, cast that one off one by one. But it's actually a once and for all type thing. 
I imagine it less of like little cares like feathers just falling on our shoulders and just throwing them away one at a time. And I think it's more like a ship, like casting off into the ocean, jumping in head first. We're casting into the goodness of God, carrying whatever anxieties we have, but throwing ourselves into him, trusting in him to take care of us. That is humility. That's the humbleness that we're trying to do. And so we have to kind of unpack this idea. And, and we have to think, if we're being really honest with ourselves, we dedicate a lot of time and energy throughout the day trying to convince ourselves that we're not nearly as dependent as we fear that we are. I think we spend a lot of time and a lot of energy trying very hard to convince ourselves that we're not as needy, not as dependent, not as weak as we think that we are, and in some cases that we know that we are. We try very hard to appear not just to others, but mostly to ourselves as very strong and as very adequate I heard recently about this practice called chasing someone to the bottom. It's kind of like a conflict resolution type thing. But the scenario they painted was you're having a conversation with a friend or just with, with a peer, and you're saying, hey, um, when we were talking the other day, you made a comment that I know that you felt was a joke or was, you know, really neither here nor there, but it actually really hurt me. It actually really bothered me. So imagine, you know, I'm having that conversation with someone, which just to be completely out in the open, that is not the type of pleasant conversation I can imagine having. That feels very vulnerable to me. That feels very scary. But just for the sake of the story, let's imagine that's what's happening. I say, uh, Robert, man, like you, uh, when we talked the other day, dude, like you just, you said this and it, it actually really, really bothered me. And I, I wanted to tell you. And let's say Robert's response, which I don't think it would be because Robert's a cool guy. Uh, let's say Robert's response is, well, what are you, weak? Like, what's your problem? I know, you know I didn't mean anything by that, so are you just, are you just sensitive? Now, my, my initial response to that is, like, I, I'm going to get defensive. I'm going to be like, well, okay, pal. Like, why can't you just listen to the little things I have to say? This is why we don't talk anymore, Robert. You know, it just kind of, kind of escalates the whole situation. But this idea of chasing someone to the bottom is Robert says, well, what are you, weak? And I say, yeah. Yeah, I am. I'm pretty weak. I'm pretty sensitive. I'm pretty needy. I sometimes make the people that I care about have conversations that make them uncomfortable. And trust me, they make me uncomfortable too. But I care about you, and I want to straighten these things out. At that point, what can they do? They can't call you weak. You already called yourself weak. What do you have to lose in that scenario? I think this is the type of humility that Peter is kind of urging his people to have. You don't have to pretend that you're strong in all these cases that you know that you're not, especially before God. God knows way better than we do just how deep and troubling our weaknesses are. 
What if when we're being tempted in a quiet and lonely space filled with all these invasive and intrusive thoughts, rather than saying, I got this, I can figure this out, I'm capable of better than this, what if instead our responses, our, our prayer to God is, God, I can't do this. I can't do this. I'm really bad at this. I, I, I actually genuinely need you to help me, Father, please. I can't do this by myself. I can't love this person. I can't keep my eyes off of this bad thing. I can't keep from hurting myself, and I can't keep from hurting you. So could you help me, please? That's the kind of humility that I don't think God just uh, withstands and tolerates. I think that's the type of humility that God longs for from us. The honesty. The fun thing is, like, how can the evil one accuse us when we're perfectly capable of accusing ourselves, but also clinging to the hope that God has given us? What do we have to lose at that point? Satan's biggest tool is the tool of accusation. If we know how to accuse ourselves well, but we know how to stop before that elevator takes us through the basement, then how do we lose? There's this quote from a old Orthodox dude, and it's just like the most metal quote in the world, but it's, keep your mind in hell and despair not. Keep your mind in hell and despair not. Now, obviously, hell is a little bit extreme, but the, the idea he has is, if hell is the place of judgment, then we should be able to apply all types of accusation and belittlement and judgment to ourselves and be able to stop before it becomes destructive and satanic. Because if we can truly judge ourselves well, then we have no reason to despair and we can allow ourselves to be built up as God promises. So that's my first point. My second point, we are not alone, colon, and we need each other. This verse right here, I need to remember it. I'm sure there's many here who need to remember it as well. Remember that your family of believers all over the world is going through the same kind of suffering you are. Man, there's something about the isolation of going through difficult times. How arrogant we can be to be like, I don't think there's anyone who understands what I'm going through. I'm going through this with my family, with this sin pattern, with this thing, and I don't think there's a single person in my church or probably anywhere who could empathize. Look, I'm not a mathematician, but the church has been around for about 2,000 years. I mean, I don't know. If, there, if we just say like an average of like 1,000 Christians per year, I mean, like you, the numbers start to get pretty big all of a sudden. The comfort here is... They know. Your neighbors, your, your, your brothers, your sisters, they know. Maybe not everyone, but someone will. So you're not alone in this. You're definitely not alone in this. We're all a part of the family of God. We're saved into a community. We, we've discussed this on, num on a number of occasions. 
And I thought about this in the context to the whole uh, Satan is a lion type thing. And I, I just, I kind of went on a, on a weird little binge with this when I was uh, working on the sermon this week. Because I was like, look, I've, there's no lions in Israel anymore. What are they talking about? Like, why do they talk about lions in the Bible? There's no lions in Israel. So there were lions in Israel up until the 13th century. And it was most likely hunters. So any hunters here? Thanks a lot. Um, just joking. I don't think you're a time-traveling uh, Middle Eastern lion hunter, so I think we're okay. But, um, but yeah, so there were lions throughout Israel for a pretty long time, definitely while Peter was writing about this stuff. So we think of lions as like, cool guy. We see him in the zoo. He's like chewing on a big ice cube or something like that. That's not very threatening. They, these people almost assuredly saw lions as extremely threatening. Also, there's this great Instagram page that my buddy Mike back there referred me to. Um, it's called Nature is Metal. And uh, before I recommend it to any of you, you probably just shouldn't even follow it because uh, it's kind of like, so if you're watching like a Discovery Channel documentary, you know, like the lion will tackle the antelope and then right when it's about to like start snacking, like the footage cuts away because it's rated like TV 14. I think this page starts when Discovery Channel turns off. It's like, it's pretty gruesome. And like, you know, Annie doesn't vibe with it at all. So every now and then we'll be hanging out and she'll look at my phone and I'm watching a Bengal tiger like ripping apart a wild boar. And she's like, what's wrong with you? It's science, you know? But anyways... There's, this, there's an interesting, they, they do a really good job. Their captions, they, they tend to explore a lot of the reasons why certain animals do certain things in different scenarios and such. And there's this interesting tactic when it comes to predators, especially big predators that attack or hunt uh, prey that travel in herds. Here's the thing. Lions are super tough. I think that's a scientific term. But... No lion can take on an entire herd of basically anything they're trying to hunt. So there are tactics that herds use to basically use their numbers against them. But here's the thing. If you're a lion, you know that you don't need to take down the entire herd anyways. So what you do is you get them kind of rattled, get the herd to spread out, and then all of a sudden, you have all the fast, the healthy, the spry. They just book it in one direction. And who do you have left? The old, the weak, the injured. And I don't know this. I don't think Peter wrote any, you know, nature commentaries. So I don't know how much, you know, Peter knew about the hunting tactics of the Middle Eastern lion. But I can guess, because there's a lot of relevance here. It's an interesting application that we can apply here. This idea that, our, that the evil one, the enemy, doesn't need to attack all of us at once. He can pretty easily just pick out the weak and the injured. And the reason why is because they're separate from the group. And I've noticed this. I've noticed those who, under whatever circumstances of life, maybe, it was a, maybe it's a faith struggle, maybe it's a tragedy that kind of befell them, whatever the case may be, 
but we find ourselves injured and worn out. And often we ourselves eject from the very community that's supposed to be there to protect us from the struggles and the shame and the anxiety that the evil one is trying to bring to us. But we separate ourselves because we find a greater sense of comfort in isolation. The problem with isolation is that if you're already dealing with a whole lot up here, and now the only voice that you're listening to is the one that you've got up here, and you don't have anyone grounded or sturdy to kind of feed you that good, sweet, cool water of the gospel, well, then you're, you're, you're on an elevator headed south. And it's harmful. So all that to say, there is a lot, a lot that I think motivates this tension in trying to escape from community when we find ourselves hurt and wounded. And honestly, that does require having a community that you can trust to actually give you the gospel. Because I've seen people run away from churches because the churches that they went to when they needed to be like, given the healing water of forgiveness and grace, they just got the heck beaten out of them. They went to people that were supposed to minister to them with the healing of Christ, and they got hit with sticks. And so there's a mutual responsibility here. Not just the individual, but also be a person who's worth an injured Christian talking to. If you've got an infatuation with perfection because maybe you beat yourself up too much, you need to catch that because it's probably going to harm another person when they come to you for healing. These things don't exist in bubbles. They're going to extend out quite a bit. And as I'm speaking to the community, it's worthwhile to say we should be on the lookout for those who need help. We should be checking in. We should be talking to people who haven't been around in a while. There are people who you know the signs of when they're not doing hot. The church is supposed to be a place for healing. If we let people leave and we don't even bother to reach out, I can't, I can't say that there wasn't some form of failure that happened there. It doesn't mean we have to babysit. It doesn't mean we have to be helicopter friends. I think those are unhealthy. But remember, the, the church itself is one of the greatest ways that God blesses us. He blesses us with each other. He blesses us with friendship and with this depth of relationship. Now, of course, all of these come with caveats. This can't be just like these wide blanket statements. There are ways to unhealthily seek to care for people, and you have to be mindful of that. There are ways in which you can form resentment because you don't feel your community is caring for you well enough, and that also needs to be tended to with care. We can't forget that the church is meant to be a place where the healing of Christ is supposed to be living and flowing throughout a community of love and of friendship. And that can't be a thing that we neglect. Guys, I mean, we're, the common denominator of our church is that a lot of people come to this building every Sunday at 4.30 
because there was another church they were going to that hit them with rods when they needed grace. Many of us know that story well. For many of us, it's written in our DNA of what made us Christians, of what keeps us alive today. If you're getting taken care of, praise God. But don't hoard that. There's something that I hear about mission quite a bit. And I mean, shoot, like I, Andy and I, and the rest of the elders, we're, we're leaders here. Obviously, there's a lot of responsibility to go in a lot of different directions. But we hear people who visit mission, and they're like, yeah, man, I mean, I think mission people really like mission people a lot. I showed up with a bunch of friends, and nobody said a word to me, and I left after dinner, and I felt kind of awkward. I've heard that story a lot. That's a bummer. I mean, like, you guys may not even know this about me, but years ago, when I first started coming here, that was my story. I was the, you know, kind of socially awkward, got a lot of social anxiety. My, my bummer was I had two friends who got me to come to mission. And then once I was like, this is it, this is my church, I'm here, buckled down 100%. That's when they like either got married or had babies and then just like church was like a once a month thing for them. But I'm like still trying to be committed so, I mean, yeah, I'm saying, I'm saying I believe it's true because that was my own experience, that there are likely people in this community here who have been committed to mission for weeks, maybe months, maybe years, and they still feel like strangers here. And I don't know. I think we got to look at that. That's my second point. Here's my third and my last. God is the beginning and the end. God is the beginning and the end. I just love the last few verses that Peter closes things out with. Like I said, he talked about the devil in great detail and somehow managed to still end this book on a high note. Just these verses, I'm just going to kind of read them maybe a little bit out of order. He says, in his kindness... God has called us to glory after we suffer for a little while. He will place us on a firm foundation. He said, actually, I'm trying. He said, I have written and sent this letter to you through Silas, who I commend as a brother. My purpose in writing is to encourage you and assure you that what you are experiencing is truly a part of God's grace for you. Stand firm in this grace. I love the use of the word glory here. There's something very transcendent about the phrase, about the, about the word glory I really wanted to tie things together with a, with a story from Peter's life because it, it is just remarkable that this was the same Peter who was just kind of like fumbling and bumbling his way through Jesus' ministry. He's the guy who always had something to say and usually didn't have the right thing to say. But what the story that I thought of was 
Jesus brought Peter and a couple of his friends up to this mountain, and this mountain was suddenly covered by this cloud of glory. And Jesus' skin starts to glow. And there's visions of two of the most key figures of the Old Testament, Elijah, who was like the grandest prophet, and Moses, who was the bringer of the law. And these two dudes are there with Jesus, glowing like, like a lightning bolt. And the voice of God just surrounds them and just this booming audio affirming the glory and the goodness and the pride he felt in his son. And Peter's there like, should I build something? Like, am I supposed to, should I start building an altar? Like, what's going on? Like, he's, he's just stricken with this view of absolute wonder and glory. And the promise that Peter has to his people is there's a glory that I saw with my own eyes that were centered around the Son of God. And I believe in a promise that that same glory will come down and cover the earth. And it'll cover the earth like a thick blanket of snow, just touching every inch, renewing and healing and blessing and restoring. So I know you're suffering right now. I know it's tough. I know it's difficult. I know you feel that target on your back. Maybe you feel a couple arrows in your back. But Peter had so much confidence in encouraging his people that God was still grand and working something majestic behind it all. And that that was a sturdy, strong hope to be held to. And so I, I had a couple of just encouragements I wanted to close out with. I wanted to say that we, we've had people just kind of coming through mission who maybe aren't in that place where they're fully on board with the, with the model of Christianity that they know. And maybe they're still just kind of peering from the outside. And you know, hey, I am just tr beyond grateful that you're even here, that you're open to that. My encouragement for you, my, my hope and my prayer for you is that every time you've experienced awe and wonder in your life, every time you've felt love and courage in a meaningful and remarkable way, every time you've felt content with something being just, or every time you've felt incensed and angry at something being unjust and unfair. You've been seeing a glimpse of this glory that Peter is speaking of, this glory of the kingdom of God. And I'd just like to invite you by saying that there is a fuller story to be explored. And the gate to experience all of that is wide open for you. And I hope that you would consider it. And to those of us who believe, I just want to say too often, and I, I, I feel the same stress within myself, we, we forget that we're trees planted by a riverbank, and trees take time, 
and take patience and we go through seasons, but life and growth are still steady and God and his provision and his care and his presence are still steady. But sometimes we, 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 we don't want to be trees. We want to be like hot pockets, like just shoved in the microwave and go from frozen to molten hot in two minutes. Here's the thing. Hot pockets are garbage. <laughs> you don't need to be a hot pocket. You don't need to be, uh, you know, 70% of your sodium intake and probably manufactured eight months before you're consumed. Just talking junk about Hot Pockets now, sorry. But, but be patient. Be patient with God as he is patient with you. Let your growth come in God's time and know that your striving is not in vain. And know that the, uh, the glory of the kingdom of God is still upon us and that it's still coming and our time of suffering and difficulty will come to an end and we will sing with gratitude at that time to a good God. So let's meditate on these things. Pray with me. Father God, um, we thank you. We, uh, we recognize that Peter is able to speak all these things with great confidence because he trusts you. Because he can say to a bunch of people who are suffering, and knowing that Peter himself was suffering and would continue to suffer until Rome would kill him. But he stood with joy and with hope just knowing that you are who you say you are and that you'll do what you say you'll do. So please help us in the meantime. Sometimes things are great, and in those times, help us to not forget you. And uh, when things are lousy, help us to remember that you're there and that you're always there. And so uh, just help to keep us encouraged, Father. Um, we thank you for everything. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. We're going to respond to, uh, to this in a couple of ways. The first is we're going to have a brief period of confession. Now that's going to work if you're not familiar. Uh, is I'm going to pray just to kind of initiate for a few minutes, just like for 30 seconds. And then we're going to have two minutes of complete silence. And during that silence, this is your time to just speak and respond to God with whatever happens to be on your heart. You can also just think through like, Maybe there are some things that you and God need to, need to chop it up about. Maybe there are some areas in which you realize that in order to really live out of humility and weakness, you want to just be candid with God and be honest with him. And you've got two minutes to do that. So, uh, so we'll do our confession, and then after that, we're going to have our three primary ways of responding in worship. What that's going to look like is uh, Corbin and Abby are going to come up and lead us in musical worship. Um, we're going to have financial giving in the back where there's a tablet right behind the back row where you can give, and we encourage giving and giving generously to support what we're doing here at Mission. And, uh, and lastly, we'll, as soon as we come out of the confession, we'll come to the Lord's Supper, which is a great opportunity to not just remember the sacrifice of Jesus, the willful and intentional way in which God suffered dearly 
in order to reconcile and, and just, just reconnect himself with those who he loved. We, we, we use this, again, not just as a way to remember what Jesus has done out of great love for us, but also to receive it as a great blessing, to receive his body and to receive his blood and to be blessed by it as it is and as he speaks of it in the Gospels. So, yeah, that's what we'll do. Let me pray for us, and we'll have our two minutes of silence. Father God, we, uh, we come to you, Lord, as humble as we can. Maybe, maybe not even as humble as we can. But we come to you, Lord, knowing that throughout our week, throughout our day, throughout just maybe the past few minutes, we did not love you as much as you deserve to be loved. We did not love our neighbor as well as our neighbors deserve to be loved. There are many things that we did that we shouldn't have, and there are many things that we did not do that we should have. And we come to you, Lord, to confess our sins, not as a way to expose ourselves to the assaults and the shame of the enemy, but as a way to present ourselves humbly before you so that just as your word promises, you will exalt us and you will lift us up and you will cover us with the confidence of your forgiveness. So please, within each of our hearts, Lord, uh, help us to confess to you.